What is the metaverse? We're going to talk about that and later try to understand if we are already trapped in it. Here to discuss back with us is Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He's a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. Jack, it's a pleasure for me to again visit with you. Thank you for visiting with us. Oh, I've been looking forward to this so much. Thank you, Craig. We have so much to talk about relative to the metaverse. What cued me to want to talk to you about it is an article in The Atlantic. We're going to talk about that later. But I want to lead off with asking you, Jack, what is the metaverse? Well, I'd like to start off by saying no one knows, but then the show is going to be over, right? <laughs> um, the, the metaverse, as we seem to be talking about it now, is a virtual reality landscape that feels three-dimensional to us, but of course isn't. So I don't know how many people have the Quest uh, virtual headsets. Um, I do, and it's really fun. And when you first get on, you're in this room. Mine is in a space station, and it really feels like you're in it. And there's bookcases and couches and things like that. And so you can imagine yourself in this transitional space. Now, imagine instead of it just being a single room that's the transition to or the holding pattern before you do games and things like that. Imagine if it were infinite. So you could walk through a door and you could be in a city. You could walk through Ikea and look at all their products without actually having to go to, you know, the suburbs or an airport. You um, you could get together with people and have conversations and really engage in this. I don't like to say artificial because it's real, but this this sense of, of absolute immersion that we have access to from, while sitting or standing in our living room. And in that sense, the potential is, is endless. It's real, like you say, but if I'm sitting next to you, I don't believe that it's real because your world, even though you and I are sitting together, is so different from mine in the moment it scares me, quite frankly, Jack. It really does. It's it's really fascinating because there are two things. The first is I always find that I am the most shocked actually when I take off the headset. Mm. When I put it on, it feels more natural. I'm, um, you know, I'm I'm putting something on. I'm expecting the change, and I don't really think about how immersive it is. I'm just in there. But then when I take the headset off and I'm suddenly in this other place, it's very physiologically disconcerting. And then actually uh, my 82-year-old mother was uh, here a few weeks ago and she tried it for the first time and she was blown over. And, and, and so much so that at first she started saying how she wanted to get one and she'd get one right away. But then after playing it with us for a few days, she decided she didn't want one because it was too scary to live alone in, in, a, in an apartment with this virtual thing to be 82. And, you know, she didn't have that sense of control. And that's, I think, what's super interesting about the virtual reality is while you control your own movements, you're in this world that isn't in your control, that you can't feel with your hands, that you can't physically run around. Now, there are things that you can do. There are gloves that you can put on that allow you to try it. There are these special treadmills you can run in. So the more money you have, the more immersive it is. But that very experience of, of, of 
not being able to navigate in a world that's new to you is potentially really terrifying. Whose world is it, Jack, that you are navigating in is, I think, the question that I would have. Well, and that's the real danger. And that's what the fight is about right now. What Facebook, what all these other places are trying to do is control those worlds, to be the first people to invent it and to be the portal. So imagine if you want to go to that Ikea uh, um, shop or uh, go to a sports event or just have a conversation with a friend or, or more, you have to enter into it. And whoever controls the entrance, controls everything. They control the price. They control the data. They control what you can see and what you can't see. And so right now, what we are really immersed in is the battle for that. Let me put it another way. Imagine you're in your house and the street you're on is owned by someone else. And every time you walk down your steps, you have to pay a toll. In order to access the world, you have to pay somebody to leave your house. Now, imagine you have a fight with that person. They don't like your politics. They don't like your attitude. They don't like the smell of the fish you're cooking. And suddenly they close the gate and don't let you out. This is what everyone is fighting about. Facebook, other people, they want the ability to charge the toll to let you leave your house and to control who goes in and who goes out. Now imagine also that once you're out, you want to build a business or you want to paint a painting and someone says, okay, you can paint a painting, but you can't do it if it offends this person or if it is more risque or you can only sell this stuff, but you can't sell that stuff because we already sell that stuff. That's what's happening right now. The people who have the most money and the most power are trying to control the construction of this thing so that when everyone has access to it, it has to go through them. And that, that is the most terrifying thing. And also the thing that they're trying to hide, because if you look at the articles and things like that, what they're all saying is, you can do this, this is going to make you a lot of money. <laughs> and anytime a rich person tells a non-rich person, this is going to make you a lot of money, it means they're going to make money and you're not. Five trillion dollars perhaps could be sent in the industry here in the upcoming decade. Jack, I'm going to throw this little seed out there, and we're going to talk about it later. But Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America, wasn't he also telling us and showing us his limited editorial content for the day and presenting that to us, and we were fixated by it? Now, we'll come back to that a little bit later, but I wanted to throw that out there now in your, in your real-world real description. How do you feel, Jack, when you are walking around with these, these headsets and the fact that the real world is blocked out? How long does it take you to make that transition, if you will? Well, let me say two things first. I don't like the term real world and virtual world because it implies that there are no consequences in the virtual world. And everyone knows that there are tons of consequences. 
people have been fired for posting things on Instagram. Lives have been ruined by uh, revenge porn and, and ex-boyfriends and girlfriends sending out nudes or sex tapes. Uh, we have been targeted and trolled and our money stolen by people on the Internet. So the words real world and virtual are a little dangerous because they make it seem like it's all a game without any consequences. The second thing is that anytime there's a new technology, people freak out. Plato was worried about writing, uh, you know, 3000 years ago or 2500 years ago, because he thought that with writing, kids would never uh, remember anything anymore and they wouldn't be able to, to recall things. And then when the printing press was invented, people were worried about the masses having access to learned material and censorship. So I don't want to be an alarmist about this new technology. Every new technology has its problems. Every new technology changes things. What we do have to be aware of is that this is a thing that tricks our brain. And that makes it a little different than writing or books. Although, as every reader knows, if you're really immersed in a book, it tricks your brain as well. What it does, and this is the direct answer to your question, what it does so effectively is it transitions immediately. It doesn't take me any time at all to enter into the metaverse. The second I put on that virtual reality headset, I am there. And if I have earphones as well, then I'm completely, you know, oblivious mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. And so to be able to turn that switch on is both persuasive psychologically, but also an incredible dopamine hit, an incredible sense of excitement and your entire physiology changes. And so it can be addictive in that very way that all the other social networks are addictive and it can be both social and isolating, right? It can be, you can be disconnected from the people around you, but you can also have intimate relationships with people in across the world in Pakistan and Zimbabwe and Antarctica, right? Um, and so this constant contradiction of what you have access to and what you turn off, that happens so quickly that it's hard to really have a sense of control over that at all. My granddaughter came over this weekend, Jack, <clears throat> and she said, Grandpa, what are you scared of? We use these things, and I went to the pyramids. I got to see the pyramids with my um, goggles on. I was walking around. It was like I was right there, and it was just really cool. And she's a student in the West Fargo School District, Jack. She's a fourth grader. What should we – should we be concerned about uses of these as um, – I don't want to say gateway because they, I think, are, are true. They're trying to provide an experience to these young people in a, um, in a good and innovative way that will capture their imagination and do, do so in ways that weren't available to me. What do you think about that? So you asked what you're, what you're afraid of. And, and one of the first things that people who have these virtual headsets try is this game where you walk on a wooden plank uh, that's attached to the top of a skyscraper oh, and you have to walk the plank on uh, the 30th floor or something. And it is 
terrifying and I am scared of heights. And it took me so long to get the courage to do it. I was at my best friend Gail's house and I could hear her laughing and saying, just go, just do it, just do it. And I couldn't because my brain told me I was on the 30th floor and I was going to fall. Right. I mean, it, again, it, it's real. It is also, it does give us access to unsupervised behavior of children, right? Your granddaughter is in fourth grade and she's traveling worlds and meeting people and all of that sort of stuff. And that has to be monitored and things like that. But at the same time, you get to experience the pyramids for, you know, $19.95 a month, right? You get to experience the pyramids. You get to travel anywhere in, in the world or the universe for minimal amounts of money as opposed to going. Now, the question then becomes whether or not for you this adventure becomes a substitute for I see. I almost slipped into a real world adventure for going to the pyramids themselves, right? And there have been a lot of movies about this and and books. Um, uh, I can't. Player Zero. Uh, Enter Player Zero. I can't remember what it's called. And there's an episode of Futurama about it. Lots and lots and lots of movies now are about uh, this process of you know getting sucked in and it being a substitute for the real world. Also, right, Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. The virtual reality, the, the, the metaverse can absolutely be the opiate of the masses. There's some statistics to suggest that the younger generation is actually having less sex than the, the preceding generations, the last two or three generations. And one of the reasons I'm sure that is, is that there is all this sexual behavior that you can do online with uh, professional sex workers with anonymous people and you don't want the the dopamine hit the excitement the ease to be a substitute for these other adventures now again there's a caveat because there's always two sides of it there are lots of people who can't go on these adventures they don't have money or they're homebound because they have illness uh or they're, they only have a limited amount of time because they're working two jobs. And so this is certainly better than nothing. It is incredibly liberating for people who have not had access to these things. My Kindle, which I've transitioned to a lot, which I was very, very skeptical of when I first got it, has been uh, tremendously advantageous to me, both because I can increase the print size. And so the older I get, the easier <laughs> it is to read. And I can read in bed next to my wife and not turn on the light. And so I know, I think I'm probably being a little redundant here, but every advantage has a disadvantage and every disadvantage has an advantage. And the one thing that your granddaughter is going to have that you will never have is that she is growing up with this. Right. And so she will understand all of it at any every level and and grasp it instantaneously. I was really worried when my daughter, you know, joined the internet world because of trolls and and people trying to manipulate her and you can't manipulate her. She knows how to handle trolls, you know, with her eyes closed. She has taught me things about dealing with jerks online that amaze me. She is in charge. Now, some of that's personality and her character, but it's her friends, too. 
if I were, you know, if I were the kind of person that was going to target high school kids, I would lose in a second. <laughs> and every game you play with your granddaughter, you are going to lose. And every innovation that comes, you are going to lose. Now, is that different than the generation that watched planes uh, fly for the first time or used landline telephones for the first time or watched the moon landing on, on television? Not at all. Every generation grows up with their new technology. But as the technology becomes more universal, as the technology becomes more powerful, as the technology becomes more intimate and more connected with every aspect of our lives, the danger increases just as the advantage increases. And I think we should point out it's true that this, is, this technology, if you will, is in its embryonic stages. We don't know, I don't think, even where this will take us. But, Jack, what I'm worried about, too, is if it's the case, like you say, and it is, that we can go to Ikea or that we can collaborate with coworkers from our couch or that we can buy a car from our couch and we can have these experiences from our couch. As a philosopher, as someone who spends his nights and days thinking about how humans interact with one another, I do it casually and I'm worried about it. What are you thinking? The nature of human intercourse, for lack of a better term, changes all the time. And let me just use a sort of a, a mundane example. There was a time when if I went to a grocery store, people would call me Mr. Weinstein or Dr. Weinstein. Now I go to Target and the, the person at the checkout counter calls me Jack. Why? Because we live in a democratic world and we try to control what equality is. And this is one of the ways that we have equality is using first names and, and, and casual uh, interactions and language. Um, as people got cars, as people got telephones, again, this social interaction changed. So every generation defines social interaction by what technology and what the goals of society are. Um, Again, sort of a, a weird example, if you ever see the original Night of the Living Dead, the black and white version, George A. Romero from the late 60s, one of the central conflicts and the thing that makes it so interesting is the two characters are trapped in the house while the zombies are outside, and one is a white blonde woman, and one is a a black man of around her same age, and she is terrified and it's impossible to know whether she's terrified of the zombies or terrified of the African-American man because it's the 1960s and civil rights and integration is the central component. Now, of course, if we saw that circumstance and this young white blonde woman was afraid of, of, of an African-American man of her age, we would just think she was evil. We would think she was a bigot, a racist, horrible, and we'd have no sympathy for her. The same thing goes here. There are things that we would do in terms of social interaction that we are going to have to figure out by uh, you know, uh, uh, success and failure, by experimentation that is going to change the way we interact socially. Now, 
if sitting on our couch means we don't go outside, it means we lose our basic health, it means that we can no longer walk a mile or run however you want to run, um, that will be a problem. But at the same time, all of these virtual reality things um, have exercise mm-hmm. <laughs> programs. And some of those things are incredibly amazing. I, I have a boxing program that, you know, I can box with someone and get a really good, a really good workout and not get hit in the face. <laughs> so on the one hand, there is this sense that isolation can be really dangerous and that getting stuck on our couch can be really problematic, which is one of the great criticisms of television in general. On the flip side, what we are doing is renegotiating what social interaction is in the first place. My daughter, again, during the pandemic, uh, my daughter was connected 24 hours a day to other people. And she would do her homework talking to people and she would clean her room talking to people. And first of all, if we had had the pandemic when I was in high school, I think I would have gone crazy Mm. because I would have had no one to talk to. But second, she'll say things like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. My Palestinian friend said this. And I'm like, what Palestinian friend? How do you have a Palestinian friend? In virtual reality, there are no borders. There's no global divide. The person who lives miles away might as well be right next to you. And what that is going to do is change what we mean by community, change what we mean by family, change what we mean by trust. And we're going to move one step forward to this cosmopolitan idea of a civil society where we are not just Americans or North Dakotans or in our cases, Weinsteins, but we are a member of a global community, all of whom affects one another, not just politically, not just in terms of war, not just in terms of economics, but in terms of the stories we tell, the ways we listen, and the people who we walk down the street with. And that We can't predict how that's going to change, but we can say that human beings get used to everything. And the thing that we do better than any other creature is alter the environment to suit our needs. Most other creatures are better than us at living in an environment, but we are better at altering the environment than anyone else, which leads to positive things like air conditioning and things like that, and negative things like climate change. We are going to change the environment, and virtual reality is one of the ways that we can do that. Is there a role for regulation in any of this that you've been experiencing? I think there is always a role for regulation, and I think that the regulation is probably on the micro level rather than the macro level. And what I mean by that is... It is probably in everyone's best interest that the metaverse is free and accessible to all. But it is also true that the rules that we set up for the non-virtual world should apply to the virtual world. Things about um, harassment, things about exploitation. Um, One of the dangers of Bitcoin is people can steal all of your money and there's no FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, insurance to give you your money back. And so if we apply the same laws 
with their flaws to the virtual world, then we can protect people while giving everyone the free access to explore as artists, explore as political agents, explore as human beings. We're visiting with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. Today's topic is the metaverse. And Dr. Weinstein, as I told you earlier, what cued me to bring this topic to the forefront, if you will, is an article written by Megan Garber. In fact, she wrote in this month's cover story in The Atlantic an article titled, We're Already Living in the Metaverse. Reality is blurred, boredom is intolerable, and everything is entertainment. The article was fascinating to me, and her perspective is is that we are already in this thing called the metaverse. What did you take from that article? Well, with all due respect, I found the article to be all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I um, and, and, and I actually had some basic problems with the premise, uh, which is actually touches on stuff we've talked about before. What she argues is that we are more intertwined with these alterations and distortions because of television, uh, because of social networks. And on some level, I understand what she's saying that. But on another level, think, for example, about how the world looked like for hundreds, if not thousands of years through a particular religious text, right? A very religious person sees the world profoundly through the interpretation of their scripture. And the verses that tell them whether angels exist, the verses that tell them whether men are superior to women, the verses that tell them what kindness means and who you can turn your back on, those define reality. And all of those are fundamentally different. A Muslim is different than a Hindu, is different than a Buddhist, is different than a secularist, is different than anyone else. And the power of religion is that it defines our reality and that we see through the lens, even if that lens is sort of a scientific anti-religious point of view. Literature does the same thing. One of the great differences between our time now and, let's say, a hundred years ago, is that now there is no agreement as to what an educated person might be or, or what they might read you know, college students or graduate students or an educated person in 1920, they will all have read Charles Dickens. They will all have read Milton. They would use those references to understand the world. Now we have a much more diverse notion of how to see reality. All that social networks have done, all that television has done, all that public radio has done is take that ability to filter the world and put it through new media, right? The famous line, the media is the message, right? That, that we are going to define through this technology, not just what education means, but what we're going to, what, what the content of education is. And so the thing that I objected to was this notion that this virtual reality isn't a natural evolution, to the way that literature, technology, ideas, art adjusts the world and adjusts our perception. So I would 
pose as a hypothesis for for you, actually, and for our listeners, how does the virtual reality change or how does our how do our ideas about them change if we think about virtual reality as art instead of technology, as if we think about it just as a creative filter through which we can see ourselves through the eyes of an artist as opposed to this mechanism that is somehow neutral and subject to our own uh, idiosyncrasies. Jack, I think she would counter by this part of her essay. And I think she considers this next level, if you will. She writes that we will become so distracted and dazed by our fictions that we'll lose our sense of what is real. We will make our escapes so comprehensive that we cannot free ourselves from them. The result, she writes, will be a populace that forgets how to think, how to empathize with one another, and how to govern and be governed. Then her assertion, the future has already arrived. We live our lives willingly or not within the metaverse today. So I think that she brings she, her, her case is this is next level business, Jack. This is not read the, uh, read the book, put it down, and go on with your lives. This is going to be so immersive and then so worrisome for some. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna throw back at her uh, Fahrenheit 451 and 1984. <laughs> Fahrenheit 451 uh, is is a story about uh, a science fiction uh, dystopian story about people who are no longer allowed to have books, and the fireman in Fahrenheit 451 actually goes and burns books as opposed to. Stops fires in houses, and Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature in which uh, paper burns. Now, it's Heinlein? I think it's Heinlein. Uh, Everyone teaches that book as if it's about censorship, but it's not. Heinlein is on the record as saying it's about television. It's about the fact that once television becomes normalized, no one's going to leave the house. No one's going to be able to understand reality. No one is going to be able to to think like political agents. They're all going to become passive individuals. Same argument she's making. George Orwell in 1984, the that's also not about censorship or even about surveillance. It's about the way that language is used to manipulate history and to manipulate truth. And that language itself defines our reality. And that once you control the language, you control people's ability to be political agents, to know the difference between reality and non-reality, to think critically. So this is why I go back to that comment I made early on about Plato being uh, against writing. Every new technology starts the same narrative. And that same narrative is, oh my God, they're destroying the people. Oh my God, people aren't going to be able to think anymore. Oh my God, we're going to be passive and we're just not going to be able to tell the difference between reality. Now, we are a divided culture right now in this country and it can be argued that... Fox News folks have a different perception of reality than MSNBC folks. Now, one of those might be more real than others. That's a different conversation. I'm not suggesting that this technology isn't super powerful and that it's new and different in very important ways. But the human problems are the human problems. And there have been – and this is one of those huge philosopher's statements here, and I apologize – 
I don't think there have been any new human problems since the beginning of humanity. I think every human being or every human generation looks at the world and takes these fundamental problems and poses them in the context of the technology and the society they're in. So what does it mean to relate to someone else? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to think for yourself? What does it mean to be safe and secure? What does it mean to have desires? What does it mean to use your imagination? What does it mean to uh, obey your leader? What is loyalty? Where is the divide between loyalty and and self-preservation how do you come up with something new is it possible to invent something that you can't imagine how do you express yourself in art all of these questions have been asked over and over and over again as long as we've had recorded history and I just don't think that there's anything fundamentally different about this step in technology other than it is universal in the sense that, in theory, everyone on Earth could be in the virtual universe at the same time. And that makes it different than a novel by Charles Dickens, although I suppose everyone could read it at the <laughs> same time. And that makes it different than, um, you know, looking at a Picasso. The scope and the power and the persuasiveness of the virtual reality certainly is unparalleled, but the problems that it creates, you know, again, it's the philosopher in me and I apologize. I see no difference between what, what we're talking about today and what the classical Greeks or the Egyptians or the early Israelites were talking about, um, or, you know, what Confucius was talking about. And, these are human problems and technology will always be subservient to the human puzzle. Here's, here's the difference that I see, Jack, and I want your response to this. The difference between the authors that you spoke of earlier, George Orwell, the philosophers from a long time ago, is I don't think they were thinking about how can I capture Jack Weinstein and never let him go. How can I put him in my world and keep him here? He's not going to finish the book, put it down, and go on to something else. And all of the research, there are meetings going on, I'm sure, in Google and Facebook and other places today that are, that are talking about that question and how to refine their software to take you in and never let you go. You talked about the gatekeeping earlier. Um, that's different, isn't it, Jack? Well, there is a fundamental difference. Um, in the fact that the books I told you about were protest literature. So they weren't the people in charge. They were the people trying to undermine the people in charge. So in that sense, I think that you're right. There's a difference. But depending on what we mean by not letting you go, I think George Orwell wanted people to have a central insight that would never leave them. And certainly – <laughs> the religious texts that I've talked about earlier, they are the first and most successful never let you go people so much so that they have either described or reported or invented an afterlife so that people are controlled, you know, before life, before birth and after death. Right. You can't say that religions and religious leaders aren't interested in never letting you go. Now, with that said. If we have a non-cynical way 
of talking about religion. We can talk about uh, um, salvation and, and, and doing what's best for humanity and, and care for the soul. If we have a cynical view, or at least let's say a realistic view, because the cynics always think they're realistic, we can see religions as a grab for power and a grab for money. What makes this stuff fundamentally different and, and which I think you are onto something about is this is about money. This is about profit. It is about having access to people's bank account and taking all of the money that is in our pockets and putting it into Mark Zuckerberg's pockets or the stockholders' pockets or what have you. So in that sense – these things are upfront and transparent in a way that no other mass institution has been before, right? We constantly sign up for things and don't read the terms of agreement. And we are well aware that everyone around us is trying to make a buck out of, uh, of us. And most people think that they can either game the system or – enjoy being a part of the system. Whether they can or not is, is a different question. So I think what's different about this group of people is not that attempt to hold people, but that blatant acknowledgement that this is about money, that this is about control, and that the people who participate are openly assenting to it in a way that people who are true religious believers aren't overtly assenting to their subservience to a tax or a religious leader. This is it's just it's more transparent. And I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it do, it is qualitatively different in that respect. I'm worried that there will become the haves and the have nots with the, this technology, but I'm guessing through history, that has been the case, too. Certain people get to experience certain things and others don't. But I'm wondering about, Jack, someone who is blind, who couldn't experience what you can experience in the metaverse. Someone who is deaf also could not experience what you and others will be, get to experience in the metaverse. I, I think that the, the have and have not question is is – of course, a central question and a perpetual question, as you point out, right? There's always been have and have nots. And a lot fewer people are on the internet right now than we like to think, because in our sort of day-to-day -day life, we encounter people who have Wi-Fi all over the place and cell phones and things like that. So I forget what the number is. It might only be like 40% 40, 40 of the world or something like that that is actually, actually has access to the internet. Put that aside. While it is certainly true that the virtual reality is a largely visual medium, the world is a largely visual medium. So deaf people often go to concerts and they'll feel the, the bass and they'll, they'll feel the rhythms and be able to dance to it and enjoy it. And there's no reason why virtual reality can't uh, emphasize the audio uh, rather than the visual and find a way to let blind people um, engage in these same activities, right? It's, it's, it's not like um, blind people can suddenly see the non-virtual world and then, and then can't see the virtual world. So as technology develops, I think 
there'll be a way of getting to people who need special variations on these. And like I said, for those people who are ill, for those people who are, are homebound, for those people who have trouble uh, navigating the outside world, this can be a tremendous advantage. The question is, <laughs> are those groups large enough that their money mm-hmm. is of interest to the company? Right. And this is where regulation is really important. What regulation does is force corporations to attend to people who are not in the corporation's economic interests. So if there are so small number of blind people in, in, in the country or the world that Facebook just isn't going to make the effort, the cost benefit analysis isn't, isn't worth it. The government can say, no, if you are going to do this for uh, people who can see, you have to do this for people who can't see. If you are going to do this for people who can hear, you can do this for people who can't hear. That's the real important of the importance of regulation. The, the thing that I always say that was so brilliant about Martin Luther King was that he realized the reason why the Mont- Montgomery bus strike was so powerful was that he realized that a, a black person's dollar had the exact same value as a white person's dollar. And so the, the, the people who used the buses in Montgomery, Alabama, while they weren't respected by the bus company, they could walk away and the bus company would fall apart because their money was worth the, worth the same thing. And if Montgomery hadn't um, supported and 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 uh, um, funded the bus company, the bus company would have gone bankrupt in, in, in a week. And so the people who have different abilities and people who have different situations, their dollars, their Bitcoin, their whatever is worth the same as everyone else's. The question is, Will they be motivated to attend to this population out of economic interests or do they need to be uh, nudged by government regulation Mm -hmm. and things like the ADA, uh, the the Americans with Disabilities Act? Jack, we'll leave our discussion today with you perhaps trying to answer this question. The metaverse will impact me, meaning you, most in my life five years from now. By what? <laughs> um, I think the metaverse will be a tremendously powerful entertainment device and a time saver on the next level, uh, sort of the Amazon.com aspect. I think that it will be a tremendous tool for escapism. And I think that the people who are going to try to use virtual reality for education are going to make a fundamental mistake before they realize that uh, they're wrong. They're going to try to get people to sit in classrooms in their virtual reality and pretend that that's something better and more meaningful than than the incredible failure of, of Zoom as an education device uh, during the pandemic. What they will be able to provide is virtual tools for uh, uh, tours for anthropology students and immersive simulations for people who are practicing surgery and things like that. The things that save money and give access to tools that not everyone has access to, those are going to be real successful. The other stuff is, is going to be, a, is going to be junk. So I think there will be tremendous, 
um, movement in the next five or 10 years. But I think that in the end, what's going to happen is we're going to heavily move towards virtual reality and then pull back and then figure out how to use it to complement our lives as opposed to eclipse our lives. We'll watch with you, Jack, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. Fascinating discussion about the metaverse. Jack, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for suggesting that article. Great topic.